This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash javascriptjabber. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another MyJS story. This week, we are talking to Todd Gardner. Todd, do you want to say hello? Hello, everybody. Now, you are on episode 138. We talked about TrackJS. Um, do you want to just yes, give people a quick overview of, of what that is and who you are and what you do? And then we'll start asking you the other questions. Sure. So um, I was on JavaScript Jabber a while back. Uh, and it was when I was just getting started with a piece of software called TrackJS, which I'm one of the co-founders of. TrackJS is a JavaScript error monitoring service. So we all know that JavaScript is amazing and never breaks. Uh, never. But when it, when it does, uh, it's particularly confusing to know how did it break and how many users did it impact and what, what went wrong and how do I fix it? And so TrackJS is a service that tells you how, how it failed, how for how many users and what were the recreation steps. Very nice. Yeah, I think, I think a lot of people use a lot of different systems like that. Um, I know in my Ruby apps, I use Rollbar. Um, yep. uh, and you know there, there are a bunch of other ones out there. Uh, what is it that makes TrackJS different before we <laughs> ask more questions? <laughs> Well, so there's a couple of things that are, are kind of unique about TrackJS. Um, the main thing that we launched with that was really unique was what we call the telemetry timeline. And so kind of a recognition that in the JavaScript space specifically, uh, the error objects themselves are not really enough to debug a problem. So like in your Ruby code, if you have a step trace, yep. chances are you have everything you need to like point out what the problem is, right? There's yeah, very few much. systems that are complex enough that a stack trace isn't enough. But with JavaScript, a stack trace, when you are even lucky enough to get one, isn't entirely clear because it's like, well, how did I get to this place? Why is this function firing? Who attached this callback? And why does this thing even exist on my page? Because of how dynamic JavaScript is and how asynchronous, um, a stack trace isn't always, um, uh, you can't always understand why it's occurring or reason about. Um, its origin. And so what telemetry is, is it's a story of all of the things that happened leading up to the problem. Mm -hmm. So it's, what did the user click on? What sort of network events were happening? What sort of uh, changes to the application state have happened? And so they let you, as the developer, kind of look at, at how, did the, uh, how did the browser get into a state where this error could occur? Now, since we launched, uh, this was such a good idea Many of the other companies in this space have copied us, uh, which is great. I'm happy that we've uh, we've pushed the whole industry forward on that. Uh, but our our telemetry timeline still does a few more things that none of the other ones have figured out yet, uh, which is cool. And our focus is entirely on JavaScript. So one of the problems that like a roll bar or that sort of thing has is that because they're trying to serve so many different environments. They have to make some sacrifices to show information that is relevant for Ruby. And same thing as, as mm -hmm. JavaScript. How they treat an error is different. Right. Uh, the JavaScript in the client has this problem where noise is a huge thing. Like most mm -hmm. errors that you receive are garbage. And so it's um, we spend a lot of time trying to figure out how do we know that an error is good, that it is actionable, that it is something that you need to, to pay attention to. Um, and so that's something that we're differentiating on right now. Awesome. Very cool. Well, I'll encourage people to go uh, check it out and check out the episode we did on it as well. Um, hopefully that'll get them some good information. The, the focus of this uh, podcast is more along the lines of developer story, right? It's where did you come from? Um, you know, what are you working on? Help people kind of see, okay, you know, Todd's doing, you know, JavaScript, error tracking, business stuff. Um, how did he get there? And, you know, 
maybe I can be inspired by this as well. So let's go back to the very beginning and uh, ask you, how did you get into programming? I got into programming when I was in junior high. So I'm going to date myself here talking about like what kind of things I was doing because um, sometimes I feel old in the development space. Uh, but my first real exposure to it was I really wanted to play video games. Uh, and I uh, wanted to play video games with my friends because there wasn't mm-hmm. really this concept of like online gaming. Right. Uh, but I played a lot of this game called Warcraft, not World of Warcraft, <laughs> not, not just, just Warcraft. Like Warcraft 1 is what I'm talking about here. Like orcs and humans and uh, you know, a, a real-time strategy game. Uh, that you could, you know, attack each other with. Um, and so I wanted to play with my friends. I had one computer and some of my friends had a computer, but it was a pain in the butt for them to like carry their computers over to my house and figure out how to hook everything together. Uh, because this is an era when like, you know, a crappy Pentium, you know, 100 megahertz, 100 megahertz computer costs like, you know, $3,000. And nobody's parents felt comfortable like mm-hmm. letting them take the family computer over to somebody else's house. So I would call uh, you old, but, uh, <laughs> uh, reasons, <laughs> I, 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 I have a similar story. <laughs> I, I might or might not know exactly what you're talking about. All right. So, so I, we found this great solution is that our junior high at the time had just upgraded their computer lab and thrown away all of their old machines. Uh, and so a friend of mine and I dumpster dived, which is, you know, we went, and found the dumpster that they threw all their computers away in. And what happened of the 20-some machines that they threw away, we were able to salvage three working machines uh, by, like, cobbling together and trial Mm -hmm. and error, putting this processor and this motherboard and changing out the memory and stuff like that. And these were – so I had these three machines in addition to my my own, you know, my family's computer. Right. Uh, And these three machines that we salvaged together were – 486 DX 50 megahertz with like 32 megs of RAM or something like that. These <laughs> tiny, like the good old 12, days, these tiny, like 12 inch CRT monitors. And they were just uh-huh. pieces. Of, they were pieces of crap, but we had three of them working. And so now we had to figure out how to network them. This was, we didn't, I didn't have like ethernet either. So we set up a token ring, uh, <laughs> A token ring network where you had to like make sure everything was like connected all the way around in a big circle with like coax cables uh, to get all these things talking. And so like just kind of hacking these things together and like messing with Windows drivers because this was just an era when like the stuff didn't really work all that well. Like you were constantly having to like hack something to make it work. That was my first exposure was just getting these four computers hacked together on a network so we could play Warcraft 2 or Warcraft 1 after school with my friends so that they would come over to my house and we would be able to do a two-on-two game um, and we'd always fight over who got the one good computer that had a, you know, a slightly bigger monitor that was still like tiny, but you know. Um, I remember token rings. I mean, (laughs) I can't believe the things you oldsters had to go through. (laughs) I know. So then... um, that was my first real exposure to this. Um, and I kind of stuck on the gaming track for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really do a lot of programming until I got up into high school. And the gaming thing had gotten a little bit more serious for me. And I started a LAN party, uh, which is basically the formalization of, you know, people carrying their computers over to each other's houses mm-hmm. and playing games. And everything had gotten a little bit bigger and better at this time. And people had their own computers. Um, internet gaming still wasn't a really big thing. And so people would go to LAN parties so that they could do this stuff. And so I, I had a small business, I guess, called Xcore LAN. And uh, we would hold LAN parties like once every other month. And we would do it in church basements or school gymnasiums or whatever. And we'd get 10 to 30 people who would show up for these um it, it grew later, but when I first started, that's what it was. And I needed a website for this thing and register and how do people are going to come and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I uh, started learning, how do I build that? How do I build a website that people could go to and like plug this stuff in? And this was 1998, I think, 1997. 
Uh, and so the the way to do that was I wrote some Pearl CGI bin like <laughs> stuff that's set behind an Apache web server. I don't even know if it was Apache at that point. Some some web server uh, that would you know take form posts and save it off. And I think it emailed them to me of like, hey, here's another person who's going to come. Uh, and just figuring out like hacking through that and figuring out how it all worked um, was was my first exposure to, I guess, real software development. Like, I built a thing that really worked that got put out on the internet and did things for people. Um, and that was cool. Uh, I kind of, over over time, I got more and more interested in the programming side of it and less and less interested in the gaming side of it, even though they're still kind of a bit of both. And, you know, programming pays quite a bit better than gaming. <laughs> yeah, a little. Unless you're at the absolute top of the class, I suppose. <laughs> yep. Oh, wow. <laughs> and there was there was a little bit of crossover. So, I mean, there's a there's a few gaming related programming things that I've I've released over time, um, particularly of a very, very old game, which you might be familiar of called Duke Nukem. <laughs> yes. Remember Duke Nukem? Yeah. Uh, so Duke Nukem had a number of like uh, uh, expansion packs that came uh -huh. out, not really expansion packs, just a disc full of maps of like, right. hey, there's a bunch more multiplayer and single player maps that you can play. Um, and I had three different maps that I had built, got published on one of those. One for like a sewer combat, one for like a Hoover Dam and a third one for a World War Three map, which was basically like just two giant buildings that would shoot missiles at each other and blow up. Um, <laughs> nice. and, so, and so those had little bits of like code in them to like trigger, you know, trigger actions and stuff like that. So that's, that's a little bit of crossover, I guess. Wow. You're computer famous. <laughs> yeah. I bet like maybe three people have played my map and have no idea. <laughs> I might be one of them, but, uh, I, I don't know for sure. I have those CDs somewhere. They they sent me a free copy for having my map included on them. Nice. <laughs> I don't I don't think they like tried. I think it was some publisher who just like trolled the internet and said, "Give me everybody who had like released a map on their forums mm -hmm. and, and just put them all on the CD and said, "Great, here we're going to release this and sell it." That's awesome. And I just I love the idea of hey, this is something I'm really interested in. This is something that I really enjoy doing, and so you just go and do, right? Um, it seems like a lot of people these days are trying to come in, oh, programming's a lucrative career, I'm going to go to a boot camp, and then when they're done, you know, they, they may or may not find a job, but they're just like, well, you know, I, yeah, I'm doing the job, and I'm getting paid, and they don't really find that passion for programming, and then they feel bad, because, oh, well, you know, I'm working with Johnny over here, and Johnny eats, breathes, and sleeps open source software, what do I, you know, what am I doing wrong? And it turns out you just haven't figured out a way to tie software to whatever it is that you love. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's very true. Like when I was building my first piece of software for the land party, I didn't care about software at all. Mm -hmm. I, I just, I had this problem I needed to solve. I needed to gather registrations for my land party. And, um, and so when I, when it was time for me to graduate high school and go on to college and decide what I wanted to do with my life, um, I really didn't know. I, I honestly, I hadn't put a whole lot of thought into it. Um, and so it was like, well, what, what program should I go into? And I ended up going to a state school in, in Minnesota here. And um, I'm like, well, what should I sign up for? I guess I like computers. I'm gonna go into the, into the computer science program. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really figure out that I actually liked programming for a long time. Like <laughs> the, the actual computer science program was very academic. Yeah. And like I, I learned about, you know, Turing machines and concepts of programming languages and operating system concepts. And it was all very like like I, I did OK in school, but it was very abstract and I couldn't really apply it very well. And in fact, my first job, my first like real job out of. Um, school wasn't in programming. I was in uh, like the infrastructure side of things. I was a Windows Server administrator for a company. <laughs> like I would do networking. I would do Windows. I would do this little bit of Linux. I would manage an Exchange server. Uh huh. And I did that for like five or six years out of school before I'm like, this is really boring. 
And I just started like playing around with um, C Sharp. Uh, so the company I worked for did a lot of, of .NET stuff. Right. And so I started like just poking around with the C Sharp stuff, trying like, again, it wasn't, I wasn't trying to learn programming. I was trying to solve some problems. Like I wanted mm -hmm. to ask some questions of like, hey, tell me what kind of things people are doing on the network drive or uh, count up how many times, like uh, one specific problem is I wanted to see how many times somebody had put a social security number on a plain text file that was on the company's all drive. <laughs> nice. It's funny uh, that you talk I, about this because, I mean... Yeah, the, so the security I, team... I know this story. <laughs> nice. The security team had asked me to check. Uh -huh. And I'm not going to tell you the name of the company, uh, but I will tell you that the results of this question of how many social security numbers were on the public or on the company Y drive was not zero. <laughs> it was number. It was a number greater than zero that we found. Um, but I was just playing around, and I ended up writing this little C sharp program that did it. Uh, and I thought that was a lot of fun. And so I started like going out in search of more problems. Like mm -hmm. now, I now I had a hammer. Now I went out finding more nails and like, I just started getting better and better at it. And it was more and more fun to solve these little problems. Um, that eventually my, um, what I did at that company shifted and eventually I got reorganized into the software development team, um, for that company. And that's kind of what started it. Nice. Yeah. It's funny. You talk about this. Um, so I was a computer engineering major. When mm -hmm. I started taking the programming classes, I was a, an electrical engineering major. And yeah, you know, it was like, oh, build this toy program, build that toy program. And so when I finally graduated with my computer engineering degree, I'm just like, yeah, programming, whatever. And same, you know, same thing through my whole college career, I actually worked as a systems administrator. And it's funny because I wrote this complicated bash script that would go download updates for <laughs> Red Hat Linux um, from UpToDate, which was their update system. I don't know if they still yep. call it that or whatever, but I remember it, up to date, but it, it instead of, um, cause not all of the net, uh, servers could connect off campus. And so, uh, it would pull them down and then it would, um, sync them over to the each <laughs> server and run them. And, uh, yeah, so I built that, but I never, I didn't even think about it as programming. You know, I was just, I was just, you know, using bash to get a freaking job done. Yeah. And, you just didn't want to do it by hand every time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so anyway, it and and it was funny because I on LinkedIn like five years later, um, I had a review written by one of my coworkers, and he's like, "Yeah, he he wrote an update system that we still use." And I'm like, "You've got to be kidding!" I cobbled that together in like three days, <laughs> and it sucked. It worked, but it sucked. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, and and finally, what it was is I was working at Mosey. We needed um, basically a ticket tracking system. And the company wasn't going to pay for one. So myself and another developer or support engineer, quote unquote, right? <laughs> support engineer. We both knew how to code. So we built our own. And it was like, oh, wait, this is cool. And it solves problems. And it's cool. <laughs> and yeah, I, I get I get people who are new to programming and they're like, they're like, yeah, you know, what should I do for a, a, a sample project to, you know, put on my GitHub or whatever. And I'm just like, find something you really love and build something for it. And well, you know, I, I'm I'm interested in finance, and there are a million budgeting apps out there. And I'm like, it doesn't matter. Go build matter. your own. Go go build something you love. You know, um, one of the things that I really look forward to, um, you know, I'm working on systemizing a lot of things in the business so that I have more time, and I want to make open source contributions to basically like Boy Scouts, and uh, I'm I'm Mormon, so the Mormon Church, you know, um, communities, and I just want to put them out there for free, but I don't have time to build them right now. And, but it's that kind of thing, right? It's, oh, I'm really passionate about this, so I'm going to go do it. I, I really need this problem solved, so I'm going to go solve it. Yep, yeah. yep. Go go do that, folks. <laughs> that, I mean, that's the way to really start learning. Like, yeah, unless you, you care about the thing that you're, you're doing, you're not going to push through the hard challenges. Because, like, every project is going to have, like... Yeah. You're going you're gonna to hit a wall where your, your brain just can't figure out how to get over a hurdle. And if it's a stupid little academic thing, it's going to be real easy to quit. But yep. if it's something you love, it's something that you're going to like, um, you're really passionate about, you'll, you'll have the energy to push through it. Yep, absolutely. I completely agree. And I encourage people, you know, just, yeah, 
you know, go, go find that thing that inspires you and then go do it. Um, so, so yeah, so you're, you're building all these uh, systems. I'm going to go back on track to our regular, um, interview questions. Um, you know, you're, you're building all these things, you're solving all these problems. How do you wind up on JavaScript? Because the era that you're talking about having built that page for your, um, your, uh, land parties, I mean, JavaScript was not fun. <laughs> I'm no. sorry, but it was not fun. So, nope. so how do you get to, oh, you know what? I'm going to be a JavaScript guy. I did not do JavaScript for quite a while after that. Um, I, let's see, I was doing C Sharp when I was working from my first job after school, after I moved into software there. Um, I was doing C Sharp and I needed like little bits of client-side behavior. And so I would write little tiny bits of JavaScript that weren't very cool. It was basically just inline script at the bottom mm -hmm. of pages to like automate drop downs or whatever. Yep. Um, story there. Yep. Uh, a number like uh, a year or so, a couple of years later, uh, I found myself not working at that company more and instead as a consultant. Uh, so I would, you know, it's fairly common in, in my area that people become independent, mm -hmm. uh, independent contractors. You work for big companies on six, nine, 12 month uh, engagements right. kind of thing, helping them, you know, fill out staff augmentation stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I found myself at this job, uh, I found myself, um, where this particular project had a strong need of JavaScript, but didn't really know that they needed a strong, like they didn't understand that yet. They, their requirements called for a lot of client side behavior, uh, but they didn't have a whole lot of client side expertise in house. Right. Uh, I did not have a lot of client side expertise either, but that's what my client needed. So, uh, I learned it. I started. I started reading. I started writing. This is uh, about 2011, I think, 2012. Mm -hmm. So at this point, the the, the JavaScript conversation uh, was uh, largely about knockout versus backbone. Right. That was that was what everybody was talking about. Yeah, we uh, did those shows. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we went the backbone route and. Uh, I use Backbone as, as my mechanism to uh, kind of learn JavaScript, uh, learn it beyond, you know, the trivial toy that I had used it for uh, up until then, actually learn the mechanics of the, mm -hmm. of the system. And I worked on that project for like two and a half years. And I would say that that's where I really cut my teeth on low-level JavaScript, is I became kind of one of the core technical people on that project because I'd been around since the very beginning. Mm -hmm. um, I was kind of responsible for the JavaScript on that project. Uh, I developed some strong opinions about how JavaScript should be should have been written, uh, and I actually built my first uh, error monitoring subsystem on that project, where uh, I first came to the realization that JavaScript sucks sometimes, <laughs> and uh, and it's going to break in production, and I need to know when it breaks. And so for that project, I built a simple error mo error monitoring system that would you know capture what the user had clicked on and mm -hmm. send that data back to a logging API. The kind of stuff a lot of people would have done. Uh, yeah, so that's where I, I really made that transition into JavaScript, probably while I was consulting. Right. And in fact, after that project. Before that project, I would have called myself a .NET contractor. Mm -hmm. And after that project, I called myself a JavaScript contractor. Right. Because I, I barely, well, I still know C Sharp and I can still write in C Sharp. Um, the thing that I feel I know best is low-level JavaScript. And in fact, uh, most of my clients after that, that point, uh, while I was doing consulting work, um, had, me, um, had me writing, you know, Bits of JavaScript, JavaScript apps, uh, JavaScript widgets, bits of third-party JavaScript, that sort of thing. Makes sense. Yeah, um, man, I remember those days, the, the backbone days, and the, you know, we we talked to Steve Sanderson, I think, about Knockout, yeah. and you know, I mean, it was it was this big thing, and you know, we had Yehuda Katz on the show, and he argued about backbone with, uh, oh, what's his name, Adi Osmani. Maybe. Jeremy, uh, the backbone guy. Yeah. Oh, Jeremy uh, Ashkenes. Uh, yeah. yeah. Jeremy Ashkenes. Yeah. So they, they, yeah, they argued about Ember versus <laughs> versus backbone. I, it, it, anyway, I mean, just you know, all all these memories of this, you know, this period. Um, I, I am curious a little bit. You know, you got into it in in 2012. 
and uh, Node.js was kind of coming up in the scene. Did you get into that as well, or is it primarily front-end that you're focused on? So I've done a few Node.js things. Um, I So my background is that I did not start in JavaScript. I've, I've worked in a number of different languages. Mm-hmm. Um, there are... <sighs> There are some really cool things about JavaScript, but there are also some things that I do not like about JavaScript. Yeah. Uh, and, and so Node.js has some some really cool uses, um, but most of them that I really uh, uh, am attracted to are around build automation of JavaScript projects or other kind of like middleware, you know, transforming JSON kind of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, beyond that, I usually gravitate towards other stacks. So I'll use um, .NET or Java to do to do those sort of things. Right. Um, so I've done a few small Node projects um, where you know it fits those. You know, I would say like some of my build systems mm-hmm. for client side JavaScript projects that use Node are quite complicated. Right. Some of my, te- my some of my test harnesses where I use real browser testing. Um, and simulate node servers are, are quite complex. And one real production node system that I built for, for a particular client. Um, but other than that, I haven't done a lot with, I haven't done node. I usually prefer to use other, other platforms. Gotcha. Yeah, I get, because, you know, I do an Angular podcast. I'm starting a React podcast. I do the JavaScript podcast. And and people look at me funny because I'm like, oh yeah, I build my backend stuff in Rails. <laughs> But you know it's it's it works for me and it yeah. get crap done so yeah. But it's yeah. about under it's about understanding the failure modes. Like you understand yeah. pretty well how Ruby is going to fail, mm-hmm. and so you can you can you know build a system with those things in mind. Um, Node I think has a lot of failure modes that I don't fully grok. Right. And so I don't really have the time to learn how they grok. Or learn how how it's going to fail, right. and uh, but I, I know how C sharp is going to fail. Yep, <laughs> makes sense. Yep, I'm going to be on a .NET podcast in on Thursday. So oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, um, so yeah, so what have you done in JavaScript that you're most proud of? What have you contributed to the community? That you want to talk about? Oh, let's see. The thing I'm probably most proud of, and, and the thing that I've I've spent the last four years working on in JavaScript is, is track JS is error mm-hmm. monitoring and, and trying to push the space forward. So not specifically even the technology, but in, in talking about how recognizing the JavaScript is going to fail a lot mm-hmm. and, and making sure that everybody who I talk to about this understands that just because you get your app working on your development machine and it works in Chrome for you doesn't mean it's done. It doesn't mean that it works, right? And it doesn't mean that it will continue working because this client-side JavaScript environment that we've created is incredibly volatile. It, it, it's continually changing. Um, so you you build your app, and then it's going out into the out into the world where it's going to run on other people's computers, other people who don't take as good of care of their systems as you would expect them to. They have all kinds of browser toolbars and they're running six old, six month old <laughs> or six version old copies of browsers. And they have corporate firewalls that are manipulating the traffic as it's going through. Mm-hmm. Um, network requests are going to take longer than you expect, or a DNS resolution is going to fail or a new browser is going to come out and say, Hey, we're the big dog in town. We're going to change how this happens. And we're just going to change how the browser API works in this subtle way. And it's totally going to break your app. Um, And so just getting people to recognize in the JavaScript land that you're never done. If you put your app into production, you always need to be watching for how is it Mm -hmm. working? How is it changing? Of all places, in all kinds of realms of software development, client-side JavaScript is the most important one to monitor. Right. Like, if you wrote... Uh, a Java app or a Ruby app. Let's say mm-hmm. you wrote a Ruby app. You put that Ruby app on a server somewhere. Yep. 
and you told that server that, hey, you're, you are Ubuntu 14, and you're going to run Ruby 1.9.4, and you are going to run it that way forever. Right. And, and so it's just going to run. Like once you have a reasonable amount of confidence that it's not going to break, mm-hmm. it's probably not going to break and it will continue to go on and on and on right. forever. And I have apps like that. And it's funny because folks are like, well, why don't you upgrade it to, you know, Rails 5 and Ruby 2, 3? And it's like, well, it works. You know, I mean, I, yeah, if I, I, if I would I upgrade it, it, it might break. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if I upgrade, I'm not adding anything to it. So, you know, I don't, I don't need modern tooling on it. You know, I just, you know, I'll go twiddle something if, if something does break. But yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm with you there. But if you have a JavaScript app out there and you rely on some subtle behavior of promise today, yeah, that's, I mean, I'm reasonably confident that how promises work is going to change and break in some way over the next two, three, four years. Well, and, and just to, you know, drive this point home, I mean, you've got... Um, proposals at TC39, and I know that there are promises proposals at some stage. There are at least one or two that I'm aware of. Um, on top of that, you have all the promises libraries, which are all supposed to be API compatible, or some of them are. And and some of the those uh, proposals are based on some of these libraries. And then mm-hmm. on top of it, some of the browsers have actually implemented their own promises thing. Then you've got all the polyfills. I mean, you know, the, there are just a million different ways that it can be not quite right. <laughs> yeah. And this is all assumed that you actually control all of the code you put into your app and you didn't rely on any third parties. Right. Like you didn't reach out to Google Analytics or you didn't mm-hmm. reach out to Twitter or you didn't reach out to Stripe because now now you've introduced a whole bunch of other dependencies that yeah. there's nothing saying that Stripe couldn't change their API mm-hmm. or maybe it gets replaced and it goes out of business or maybe Google Analytics changes something significantly, or an ad blocker comes along and just tries to destroy all your pages that use Google Analytics. These are all things that can happen. And so when you build a JavaScript app, you're never done. You can never just say, this app is done and walk away from Mm -hmm. it. Because it's always, it's, you've put it into this volatile environment. I would say that advancing that conversation is the thing that I am most passionate about and what I'm most proud of. Nice. That's awesome. And it's, it's interesting too, right? It's not, Oh, you know, we're, we're out here to, I mean, you're, you're a business, you're, you're in it to make money, but at the same time, it's, Hey, look, let's have these conversations. Let's make a difference. And, and I think the businesses that really tend to thrive are the ones that, that have that purpose in them somewhere. Right. And then, you know, I mean, you even saw this early days with Google and Microsoft and some of these other companies and some of them have held on to that better than others. You know, I think Amazon does a pretty good job of wanting to, you know, provide people with the ability to buy anything they want, you know, which was kind of one of their defining features where I feel like, um, you know, Microsoft kind of lost its way for a while and it kind of found it again. And, you know, they, they, they have some mantras and some things that they promote now that they're working on. But, you know, Google, I feel like in a lot of ways has lost it. Uh, you know, Facebook has lost a lot of the, you know, the initial, hey, you know, we just want to be this place where people can come and connect or college students want to come and connect. Now they want to be everything to everybody everywhere. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, and so, yeah, I mean, they're still doing good stuff, but they're kind of this faceless company that you never really know what they're really in it for anymore. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've always tried to be clear that our goal is just, we want to fix broken web pages. Mm-hmm. Like we're we're tired of broken pages that like don't work when you click on a button anymore, or generate yep. crappy JavaScript errors when I'm trying to book a flight or whatever. Like that's just so irritating, especially as a web developer. Like when you can like open up the browser console and see what's failing and just be like try and scream into the void of like, I have no idea how to go about contacting these people and tell them that their website is broken. Right. Uh, it's just so infuriating. Yep, absolutely. So, uh, yeah. So usually I ask, what are you working on now? And, you know, I'm assuming it's more track JS. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, once you start something like this, it's, it's a never ending thing. So yep. we're, we're working on some new stuff. Uh, right now I'm working on, uh, we're redeveloping our brand. Uh, a lot of our logos and colors and, and, how we talk about ourselves has remained kind of unchanged in the last four years since we started. Uh, so we're kind of trying to look a little bit more polished and professional and real. 
Um, we're working on that right now. We hope to launch some of that here in early in the year, uh, hopefully in January. Uh, I'm, I'm a big conference junkie right now. I go to a lot of software conferences, and so I'm working on a couple of new talks right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, what my talks are kind of focusing on right now is more of um, the key business skills I feel are important for developers to have. Um, kind of a rant or a, an idea that I've had kind of uh, bugging me for a while is I feel like there are, this might be off topic for this, but I'm going to say it anyway, and you mm-hmm. can just cut it if it's not relevant. No, go for it. <laughs> um, I feel like GitHub is amazing, as we as we all know. Right. But what GitHub did is it made making your software open source too easy. As mm-hmm. in, I think there's too much open source software right now. And what oh, I mean by that, what I mean by that is that somebody comes along and they make a, they have a great idea and they make it open source because it's just so easy to take this thing and make it open source. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, people start depending on it because this thing that they made is really good and valuable and it solves important problems for people. And so all of a sudden, they have all of these people asking for things, asking for support, asking for new features or whatever, and it becomes a burden on this person like mm-hmm. they their ego and and their ego is inflated <laughs> and everything is like they're important now because there's uh-huh. 10,000 people using their their bit of software but it's also a ton of stress on them right and right now there's no there's no good way for them to do anything but to have made it open source and then beg for money after the work it's like right yep. they put on git tip or patreon or open collective or, or open collective or whatever and those things work a little bit but they don't work a lot. They don't, they're, they don't, for very few people are able to transform that into working for their, working for their open source project full time. Right. And so I feel like one of the things on why people follow that path is because they don't see another option. They don't mm-hmm. see the option of, hey, what if I made a business out of this? I've, I've created something valuable. How do I turn this thing into a bit of commercial software? I feel like commercial software isn't it isn't inherently evil. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people see it as like, oh, it's the enemy of open source. I'm like, well, no, you can still be open source. You can release the source and but say it's commercial, like you have to pay to yeah. use it. And like every time I see somebody, um, you know, an open source author on Twitter complaining about how he doesn't make any money. I have this template response I give them. I'm like, what if we, you know, got all of your users together and said they have to pay a certain amount of money in order to continue using it? Yeah. What if we call this thing a license? <laughs> <laughs> As like we're we're backtracking our way back into commercial software by by seeing these problems. And so I have a I have a couple of talks I'm working on on that of like how do I teach developers to not be as scared about business stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like they're all a little, um, there's some general concern and and friction against going down that path right. that uh, is somewhat warranted. There, I mean, it is harder than, you know, starting a GitHub repo and saying, go. Yeah. Uh, but it's not as hard and scary as we make it out to be. So I'm working on that a little bit, too. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. Um, Eric Berry, who started Code Sponsor, is, yeah. is Ruby Rogue's uh, panelist. Yeah, and I know Eric. We actually um so TrackJS worked with Code Sponsor while they were going. Nice. Yeah, that yeah, and it was just interesting just talking through a lot of this with him and you know, we had a lot of the same conversations about sustainability. It's just you know what? These people are putting in a ton of time after their full-time job and yeah. 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 Um, and I, I think sustainability ties right into my kind of my core belief that has mm-hmm. has led into TrackJS and everything is around reducing the volatility of software. Yeah, is once I build something, it should work, and I think that um, open source or how easy it is to get into open source and, and build start an open source project has made things more volatile. Yeah, I think yeah. in some ways it has, and in some ways, I mean, it's nice that people can proliferate what they've built, and yes. so and so there's this trade off, and you know when you when you get something that's really big. Um, when I was in New York City, I talked to somebody and he asked me not to share his name, so I won't. But um, he works on a fairly widely used JavaScript project and he goes to work full time and then he comes home and works another like four or five hours every day on this open source project that a ton of people use. And, you know, he's 
he gets some support from the community, but it's not enough for him to quit his job or, uh, you know, he, he's worked with his employer to get some time to work on it at work. But still, it's just it's really hard because he wants to make sure that he's adding value to his full time employment as well. And so what do you do? I mean, he's he's not the original creator of this project. He just took over maintenance because the original guy moved on to something else. And for exactly the reasons you're talking about. So what I mean, what do you do? Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't know what like arguably if this was a, a, a thing that demands as much support and as much maintenance as he's giving it. Maybe it should have been a commercial piece of software that people have to pay to use. I, I love open source. So yeah. I'm not I'm not trying to say I knock open source. It's just we put expectations on open source software. Like yeah. when you come along and, and find a piece of interesting software out on GitHub, that's awesome. You should take it and you should make mm-hmm. it your own and you own support for it. It's when you put that burden on somebody else who is just an individual. It's not like you put this put it on like Facebook behind React or right. Google behind any, if you put it on on Jane who supports awesome library X, mm-hmm. like that's not cool. Like if you want to use it and you have those questions, either publish it back and, and support it, or if you want to take it into a different direction and you're not willing to like contribute back, then it is your software. You should have forked it or copy yeah. and pasted it, or it is yours now. And if you had that expectation that you should get support for it. If it's a kind of software that is big or important or valuable enough that you have that expectation of support, those are the kind of projects I feel probably should have just been commercial to begin with. And you should have paid, you know, a license in order to get access. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, it's interesting. And, you know, Code Sponsor was kind of the same thing, right? It was, well, we're afraid of the... I, I don't want to use the word afraid. But we kind of look down on a lot of the business-ish stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And advertising's business-ish stuff. And yet, you know, through Code Sponsor, you know, they were able to contribute to open source. And the advertisers were happy to, you know, put the money in. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it, it, was, it was an interesting solution. And there, there's going to there's gonna have to be a solution like this, you know, whether they, people start licensing for fees or people start, you know doing the advertising kind of thing or they find some other avenue because begging for donations, I agree, just doesn't work. So anyway, I've got to move this along because I have JavaScript Jabber in about 15 minutes. So uh, no worries. <laughs> no problem. Um, but yeah, so what kinds of things are you doing with TrackJS right now? So uh, the base level JavaScript tracking agent uh, the plugs in uh, and, and monitors our, our customer sites is very operates on very low level JavaScript. And mm-hmm. so uh, it doesn't have to change very often, but we do watch um, the the new browser, uh, what uh, what standard changes that they're adopting as the new browsers are coming out to see if there's any new hooks that we can get access to better information or better errors. So there's a lot of actually time spent kind of surfing the standard forums and seeing what people are talking about and what things are uh, are coming down the pike. Occasionally, we contribute our, our vote to them and say, hey, we think this would be really important to like um, get some better information about when this sort of mm-hmm. thing breaks. Um, but we haven't had to make a lot of really substantial changes to it um, in a while. Usually, we're just adding little bits of new functionality to capture new bits of data. Awesome. Um, yeah. Most of my work for the next month or two is going to be non-developmental, I think, and mm-hmm. in the TrackJS world. Um, it's going to be more about um, kind of sharing some best practices. We're working a couple of blog posts and a couple of videos um, that I hope to come out soon. That makes sense. I'm curious, you know, as a, as a business owner, how much time do you actually spend coding versus doing other things? I probably spend, at this point less than 10% of my time coding. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, that's just me. So TrackJS, I am um, not the only person who works on it. Uh, I have I have two other partners. Uh, they spend 90% of their time plus coding. Like that is, they, like, they are the, de- the primary developers at this point. Right. Um, my role has shifted a little bit. What I'm, what I primarily still develop is the tracking agent itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm still responsible for that. And so um, when changes need to happen there, I'm the one who does it. 
It's just it's fairly stable and it doesn't require a lot of it. It comes in right. fits and spurts, right? So like if something big changes, I might spend 100% of my time for, you know, three, four weeks working mm-hmm. on something. But right now it's stable and I don't expect to make changes for a little while. Right. Very cool. Well, the last thing we do on this show is picks. And since you've been on JavaScript Jabber, you know about picks. For you, the listeners of my JavaScript story, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at lootcrate.com. Just enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month I get a box in the mail, costs less than $20, and it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and much, much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that, and you want cool stuff to put around your office, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com slash ruby. Again, that's lootcrate.com slash ruby to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Uh, I do. Do you have some things you want to shout out about? Yes, I have two picks that are totally unrelated to everything we've talked about, which is what I think I like to do with picks. Mm -hmm. So the first one is uh, because I don't get to develop very much in TrackJS directly anymore, I find other uh, places where I can do development. Lately, I have been playing with smart home stuff. Uh, So specifically specifically smart things, uh, which, you know, has roots back in Minnesota before they got bought by Samsung. Uh, I've been buying some devices and playing with some stuff. My opinions of smart things are you really need to get into the custom stuff to do real important, powerful things. And what I want to shout out here is a service or is a tool called WebCore. Uh, WebCore is like basically this awesome rules engine that you can plug into smart things to do real things. Mm -hmm. And so it's, um, uh, it's basically a programmatic, uh, rules engine that you can do, uh, like the room I'm in right now can like, has a motion sensor in it. And if nobody's in here for 30 minutes, the lights will dim, except if, you know, somebody turn hits the switch on, you know, all all those kind of things that you would expect. And so that's, it's a really cool project and I'm really impressed with WebCore. So I wanted to give that a shout out. The other thing that's totally unrelated back on the gaming thing is I was looking for a new game to play that I picked up real cheap on Steam during their fall sale. Um, it's a little bit older game. Uh, I was I was really into Fallout 4 when it first came out, mm-hmm. and I beat it, and I was kind of having withdrawals from Fallout. I wanted to play it again, but I, you know, I, I knew the story. So I played this older game called Rage, mm-hmm. Uh, which is a crossover between Bethesda and, and id software. So it's it's like it's more of a first person shooter, but like it's set in a similar world to the Fallout. I think it's like five dollars on Steam. Nice. It's really good. It's really fun. It's it's worth it's worth a play. Nice. Awesome. I'm gonna jump in here, I guess, with a couple of picks. Um and I totally forgot what I was gonna pick. <laughs> <laughs> I really want to get into that. I, I was so fascinated because I really want to get into the home automation stuff. So um, anyway, uh, yeah, so I'll go ahead and pick a few things. One of them is uh, I've been playing around with these games on my phone. Um, one of them is called Eternium, which is kind of a Diablo style game where you just you tap where you want to attack or move to. Um, and that's been kind of fun. Um, I've been playing it on normal and normal is actually really easy. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to leveling things up so I can play on hard. Um, but anyway, I've been, I've been enjoying that. And then, um, I, I do remember what I was going to pick now. So, uh, last week, uh, I started doing coaching with a new business coach. I switched business coaches cause, um, I paid for a year with one coach and now I kind of wanted a different take on things from a different coach. And I just feel like that's kind of a healthy movement, right? You get what they were good at, and then you get what the new person's good at. Um, one of the things that my new coach made me do was read or reread the E Myth Revisited, which yeah. is a terrific book. And I'll tell you, the the I got probably a third of the way in, and I was totally depressed because <laughs> he, you know, he talks about all the problems that entrepreneurs get into, and uh, I was just like, oh my gosh, the the, the oh, I I just I was so depressed, and then. Um, <laughs> Uh, anyway, so then you get through the rest of the book and now I'm like totally motivated to do all the things that they talk about in the book to, to fix all my problems. So 
that was really, really good. Um, my coach has a podcast. It's called uh, Business on Purpose. His name is Scott Beebe, and he is he's awesome. I've known him for a couple of years. And uh, yeah, one of the reasons that I picked him was that uh, over the last year, my last coach was really good at big picture. And she did have processes for figuring some of this stuff out. But he has a very regimented four-step uh, program to master your business. And it goes through all the stuff that I'm really not good at and just makes you do it. And that's kind of what I needed as, as a next stage. So I kind of have the high-level strategy stuff covered from my previous business coach. She's also awesome. That's Jamie Masters from Eventual Millionaire. Hmm. Um, so I'll, I'll pick her as well. But now I've, you know, I'm getting down into the tactics and getting all that stuff done. So that's tremendous. Um, he also sent me a couple of other books, and I'll just uh, quickly shout out about them because I've read them before. Uh, one is Profit First. If you're looking at uh, cash flow for your business, Profit First is awesome. I, I love, love, love the process. And then the other one is the 12-week year, which is more around planning and goal setting. So um, I'll go ahead and pick all of them. And then um, one last thing. I know I've picked like eight things now. Um, is I'm, you got to leave some things to pick for your other podcasts. That's true. I am doing more interviews tomorrow, so maybe I should save them. I'll, I'll just save them. Uh, I'm going to stop there. Um, but yeah, anyway, um, so great stuff coming out of that. I'm really looking forward to, uh, you know, building systems around this stuff and, and making it. Essentially, my goal is to get it to the point where if something happened to me, my wife could come in, she could look at basically the, the operations manual for the business and more or less run it. She'd probably have to find somebody to do some of the stuff that I, I'm going to wind up doing myself forever in the business. But most of the other stuff, she'd know how to do it. Um, all the stuff I do, she'd know how to do. But yeah, it's just the content expert expertise in programming kind of thing that she'd probably have to hire for. So anyway, if people want to follow you, see what you're working on these days, um, you know, maybe you tweet or, you know, GitHub a lot. Uh, where, where do they go to find all that stuff? Uh, probably Twitter right now would be the best place. I'm at Todd H. Gardner, T-O-D-D-H-G-A-R-D-N-E-R. Um, I've been taking a little bit of a break from Twitter lately. Uh, like, I don't read it. I, I publish, I, I write things, but I don't actually read what anybody else does. Uh -huh. um, that was kind of a, a over-the-holiday thing. It's, I think I'm actually happier not reading Twitter right now. Um, but I'm going to, I'm planning on writing some more long form articles, uh, and I'll publish those at, uh, Todd.mn. Awesome. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, thanks for coming, Todd. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's always a fun time chatting with you. Yeah. I, I, I love chatting with people and I love getting these stories. So, uh, thank you. We'll go ahead and wrap this one up and we'll catch everyone next week. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.